I did reach out to Brother Matt yesterday evening, and I was exhausted, but it was not because I was at any concert, especially one where Taylor Swift was singing. If I've ever heard her sing, I'm not aware of it. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I can leave this world and never do. And I don't know anything about her, so good or bad, she may be a wonderful person. I don't know. But uh, I do believe we have some folks in the congregation that was there last night, though. I was tired, but I was, for a little better reason, I was in Gibsonton all day yesterday uh, umpiring Little League Baseball. And so I look a little red because I was out baking in the sun all day. But uh, anyway, very thankful for the encouragement and exhortation that Brother Matt has uh, brought to our attention and our minds. And before I open with the verse I'd like to focus on this morning, uh, oftentimes when we look at the case of Elijah, uh, there's so much about his life that is interesting, fascinating, but uh, it is so strange that there, after that wonderful uh, display of the power of God in uh, fire coming from heaven and devouring uh, the sacrifices, uh, or the, the, the altar and the sacrifice, we find that Elijah, as you know, was very discouraged. Um, and I think mostly because he expected a complete overhaul of the nation, a complete revival politically in Israel, and it didn't happen. Uh, all that labor, all that work, three and a half years of being in a drought, and what did that do to wake up Israel? Hardly anything. And um, so I, I really think that's where Elijah was. He said after all this effort, all the prayers, all the um, all the work of the Lord to bring revival, and yet it still didn't occur. So, Lord, just take my life. And, of course, the Lord did not until the Lord had someone in place ready to take his position as the man of God, and that was Elisha. And then the Lord took him, not just his life, but took him in the chariot of fire and a whirlwind. And he was one of two that so far has not experienced death. Um, he was greatly blessed. And with his attitude thereafter, Carmel, he didn't deserve what God did, but uh, the Lord still in his mercy took him out of this world in a very amazing way. But I'd like to think about this morning how he's going to get us out of this world. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4 is where we'd like to focus. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Again, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Paul has just declared to us that if we're risen with Christ, meaning if we've been born again of the Spirit of God, then we're to seek things that are above, not things that are of the earth or on the earth. Our affection Notice that singular, not plural. Our affection is to be on things that are heavenly, not things that are earthly. And then he says, for you're dead, meaning to the things of this world, we've already been put to death to those things. They have no lasting power or even whatever desire we have towards earthly things, that's coming to an end. So we ought to live like that now. So he says, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, because we are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And again, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. 
Paul doesn't just make that up uh, to sound good. This is something that Jesus himself promised. Think about John chapter 14. Jesus says, let, your not, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. He lets us know that uh, if these things were not so, he would have told us. Then he also lets us know that, um, that there's coming a time that where Jesus is, there we will be also. So Jesus made that promise. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let the noise, the scares, uh, the moments of affliction and trial distract us from the reality of the promise of Christ that he is coming again. And when he comes, we will appear with him in glory. This is the final phase of our deliverance of salvation. Before the world began, God foreknew us, elected us, and predestinated us. He set our destiny to be with God in heaven in the image of Jesus Christ and adopted into the family of God. God set that destiny before he ever threw out the first star into the heavens, before the first tree was ever planted upon the earth. And before man drew breath, God had already determined that you and I would bear the image of Christ and that we would be placed into the family of God before any of that ever occurred. So before any devil could ever try to come against God and before any man could have a will, God already determined uh, by his powerful will where it is that we will be when we breathe our last or if Jesus comes first, uh, where we will dwell forever. Then as we saw, of course, man fell, and because of the fall of man, the Lord Jesus came into the world, and as our substitute, he satisfied the wrath of God and justified us in God's sight, and now we stand uh, not condemned, but righteous in God's sight. Sometime between our conception and death, the Lord will come to us in the form of the Holy Spirit and enliven us in Christ. As the verse says, if you then be risen with Christ, if we've been risen, that means we've been quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And as we saw last week, you and I are preserved by the power of God until the moment that he comes back at the last day. And as Paul says, I pray God, your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless to the coming of the Lord. And so we see that God, before the world began, uh, determined where we would be. Uh, he paid the price necessary to make sure we could go to that place. Uh, then uh, sometime in our experience, he makes us a partaker of the divine nature so that if we pass away before Jesus comes back, our spirit and soul is made ready to inhabit heaven. And then we are preserved. Our body will be preserved by the power of God. And then when he comes back, body, soul, and spirit, we will be with the Lord in glory. Again, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. How in the world is that going to occur? Well, obviously, um, God made the world out of nothing, spoke it into existence, and here it is. Uh, it's no trouble for God to take care of us, whether we've been dead for a few moments or whether we've been dead for ages. Here the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we will be with him in glory. Uh, whether we've died and uh, been in the grave for a thousand years, or whether we're present at the coming of the Lord, either one will not prevent the Lord Jesus Christ from getting us 
to the place that he promised we would go. Now in 1 John chapter 3, John says this, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Then he says in verse 2, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he says, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, meaning Jesus, is pure. So here John lets us know that while we're not certain what we will appear like, what we shall be, I don't know what we're going to look like in the resurrection, and we'll look at some more of that in a few moments from 1 Corinthians 15, and it really doesn't matter to me. <laughs> David said in the Psalms, he says, when I awake in thy likeness, I shall be satisfied. And so whatever our appearance will be at the resurrection at the last day, we're going to be satisfied with that. And here John doesn't even concern himself with it. He says, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall be or see him as he is. So John doesn't get into the matter of exactly what we're going to appear like at the second coming. He just says, we're going to be like him and we shall see him at that day. John says, I'm satisfied with that. That's all I really have to know. And that's all I need to know. I don't need to know exactly uh, what form we'll take, exactly how we're going to appear. Uh, but I do know that we uh, shall be satisfied. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul would say it this way in uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. He says, for our conversation... That conversation means our life, our citizenship, our home, he says, is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like his own glorious body. So here the apostle says, our home is already established. It's in heaven from whence, uh, from that place we look for the Savior. And when he comes, he said, he shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like his glorious body. And this is not just a New Testament principle. Uh, this principle has uh, been believed by saints of God uh, throughout the ages. Uh, most likely, the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Now, I realize that chronologically, Genesis comes first because it talks about the creation of the world and goes through the history of the patriarchs. But most likely, Job uh, and that book predates the, book of, the books of Moses, beginning with Genesis. Uh, Job obviously believed in the resurrection. Uh, we all know the verse, do we not, in Job chapter 19, after he had been uh, tormented and tortured and persecuted by his three friends who were charging him with wickedness and ungodliness had been hidden in his life. And because of that, God was bringing judgment against him and he needed to just confess his secret sins so that God would come and bless him. Finally, Job, in his frustration, he says, oh, that my words were written in a book that they were led in the rock forever. And then he goes on to say, so I know that my Redeemer liveth. Not that he would live at some other time. He says, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And he says, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. 
How did Job know that? How did somebody that lived uh, around 6,000 years ago, before the gospel of Christ was ever entered into the world, uh, before Jesus preached his own gospel, or the apostles uh, set forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that tells us more clearly about his second coming and the resurrection? How did Job know that? How did this man say, I know that my Redeemer liveth? He understood he was a sinner. He confessed that. How did he confess? He says, I have a Redeemer, which meant he understood he needed redemption, which confessed that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. But he says, I have a Redeemer, and he lives right now, and he will stand at the latter day upon the earth. He says, I probably won't see him uh, before he stands at the last day upon the earth. Uh, somehow he knew that. He says, I know I'm going to the grave. And he says, and even though my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He says, whom I shall behold for myself and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He has just declared to us that uh, he expected fully that his body would be completely dissolved by the decay process that happens uh, to our earthly bodies at death. He didn't figure that any part of him, he says, even my reins, uh, everything within me, he said, will be totally and utterly gone. <laughs> but at the resurrection, at the last day, he says, I will see him and in my flesh I'll see God. How did he know that? He knew that by divine inspiration. He knew that because God himself expressed this to Job and Job was able to record that truth. And thank God that he did. That's one of the most apt descriptions of what's going to happen to our bodies at death. When we pass away, I don't care what preservatives you put to the body, it's still, it's going to decay away. It's going, it's, it's, it's just going to happen. Most don't realize that even in our time today, when you go through the undertaker and they go through their process of embalming the body, that only lasts a few days. Uh, before long, those chemicals dissipate from the body and your body begins to decay. All that's for is to keep your body preserved a few days so that at visitation and your body's viewed, it still looks somewhat presentable. Maybe a little too... Plain, but that, that's what it, go ask Dan Druin at uh, Hopewell. He'll tell you exactly that's what it's for. He and I have discussed what I want done when I pass away. He has the exact same plan. I do not want to be embalmed. I'd like to be buried as directly and as quickly as possible so that that uh, won't be needful for me. I don't want that process done to me. I don't uh, want any part of that. Uh, in fact, I've, I've talked about this here recently. So I wish we would go back to the way it was 100 or 150 years ago. You know how families took care of the body back then? When someone passed away, generally, folks were poor, they would be laid out on whatever dining table the family had. And there that body would lay, and then the men of the family would be out in the barn or someplace, and they would be building a coffin. And there'd be someone that would sit with the body to make sure that the body, that the person had actually expired. And then come the next morning, that family would go out to a family graveyard, or if there was a community or church cemetery, that family would uh, dig a grave, and they would have a service right then. It would be short, it'd be uh, to the point, and that body would be buried normally within about 24 hours of that person passing away. I think we ought to get back to that trend and just kind of put the funeral business out of business and uh, not let them take advantage of people like they do and just go back to uh, what we once did. And in fact, I'm trying to look into how I can uh, make that a reality for my case. But anyway, um, 
you know, Job realized that our bodies are going to dissipate. That's just a reality. So how is Jesus then going to get this body? As Job said, in my flesh shall I see God. Now, we believe that redemption is complete, that Jesus did not come to die only for the soul and the spirit. Or I hope you don't believe that. I hope you understand that Jesus paid for you completely, that he paid for your body, he paid for your soul, and he paid for your spirit. You belong to him in your entirety. And for the redeemed family of God, uh, he is not leaving not one part of us behind. He's not going to be satisfied with us just being spirits and souls in heaven throughout all the days of eternity. He'll only be satisfied uh, fully at the resurrection at the last day when our bodies are rejoined with our soul and spirit. And there we stand glorified in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there we're like him when we see him as he is. Uh, Jesus, again, didn't just pay for uh, spirits and souls. He paid for this body as well. And these bodies he will have. And he will not have them in their present form. These bodies right now are not heaven fit. Uh, we're not designed right now uh, to live in glory. Uh, we're not designed to be heaven dwellers. We're earth dwellers. This is where our bodies were made uh, to reside. This is the environment which our bodies are made for. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this natural body is coming today. It becomes a spiritual body. Now when it says spiritual body, that does not mean that if you reached out and touched it that it has no substance. That's not what Paul means by that. What he means is right now our bodies are governed by nature. Our bodies are governed by the earth upon which we are. We are bound by time. We are bound by gravity. We are bound uh, by the reality of sin and the effects that it has upon us. That's just how it is. We are earthbound natural bodies. But the day is coming that we will possess spiritual bodies. What does that mean? It means we will be governed by the Spirit of God and not by nature. Uh, nature will have no dominion over us at the second coming. Why? Nature will be done away with. Jesus will destroy this world and we'll be dwelling with him in glory. And so at that point, we'll have spiritual bodies. Bodies governed by the Spirit of God. But how is he going to make that a reality? How can he do that? Again, he took the dust of the earth with Adam and formed it into the form of a body. And there was this shell of a man. I just imagine Adam laid out there in, Eve, in, in the Garden of Eden. And here you just see a, a body. I mean, it's, it's pleasant. Uh, I, personally, I don't even like going and viewing bodies at a visitation. I don't need to see the body to be convinced that the person has passed away. Some folks need that for closure, and I'm not mocking that. I don't need that for closure. If somebody tells me somebody's passed away, I don't think they're going to joke with me about that. I'm going to take them I don't need to see the body. I, it's just not something that I uh, find appealing to look at. That's just me. But uh, anyway, the, when Jesus comes and these bodies, but okay, my, Adam didn't look that way. You know, he hadn't gone through the undertaker's hand and they didn't have to have a hairdresser come in for him and put all the makeup on because the coloring had gone out of the body. Adam was serene. It was a peaceful, I would imagine beautiful, if we can say that for a man, body to look upon. But at this point, it was completely lifeless. But no sin in it, so it couldn't decay. And so here he's laid out. And then God comes and breathes in his nostrils, the breath of life. And when that happens, Adam became a living soul. 
he, he was alive because of the breath of God. Now, understand that Adam at this point is a good man. This man is a godly man. He's done nothing wrong. He stands righteous before God. He's done nothing uh, that would shame God at all. But he's not like you and I are now. When we're born of the Spirit of God, we're made partakers of the divine nature. Now, Adam, Adam didn't have that. He was not a partaker of the divine nature in the sense that we are when we're born of the Spirit of God. He was a good, natural man. And he would have stayed in that state had he never taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he did, and so he fell and plunged all humanity into death and despair. And that's where we would have been outside the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But imagine if God could take the dust of the earth and form it into a body and breathe into the nostrils of that body. And all of a sudden that man becomes a living soul. Do you think that age or time or the decomp uh, decomposition of the body is going to be a problem for the Lord Jesus Christ. It won't be, I promise you that. Now, some have said, well, is he going to be able to gather every cell of our body back together? I, yes, I think he could. I don't think it's necessary, though. You recognize that in every cell of your body is the complete DNA picture of who you are. And so literally, if Jesus has one cell of your body, he can take that one cell and make again your entire body. So whatever cells of your body that have dissipated, he doesn't have to have them offered to still be you. Uh, now, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know if he's going to gather them all back together or not. I don't know if he's just going to use one. It really doesn't matter to me because I'm going to be satisfied when I awaken his likeness. But uh, that's all it would take for it to be me is one cell. That's all he would need. One cell and he can make a body from that one cell and it's still me. It still has my genetic code. But then he's going to do something else. There's going to be a change. He's not going to leave this body like it was. In the book of Ezekiel, we find a very interesting uh, sight that Ezekiel sees. The 37th chapter. God brings Ezekiel to a valley. Now some thinks, think this is talking about the resurrection of the last day. That's not, what is, that's not what's under consideration. God is really showing Ezekiel, that Israel who thinks they're dead and gone and their hope is lost and they'll never be a nation again, they'll never dwell, he's letting him know that, yes, they're going to be restored. But he uses a very interesting uh, analogy and imagery for uh, Ezekiel to see. He brings him to a valley of bones. Here are these bones just laying out on the ground. And God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, Thou knowest, Lord. You know, he's like, I don't know, but you know. And so he tells Ezekiel exactly what he's supposed to do. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel is to call for the winds, and the winds come from the four corners of the earth. And as these winds come, you know what happens? The bones begin to rattle, the scripture says. So here's this valley of dry bones, and all of a sudden, the wind comes upon, and these bones begin to rattle. And then the bones join back together. Then the sinew comes, the muscle is put back on, uh, skin covers, and then breath enters back into these bodies. And these bodies that were literally just uh, laying all across the ground, littering this valley, all of a sudden are alive. 
Now, did that literally occur? I don't know. I mean, it could have just been an image that, uh, uh, almost like a movie that uh, Ezekiel saw played out there. But either way, he understood that God was able to take a valley of dry bones and bring them together again and put the flesh there back on and bring breath back into the body. And these bones that had been out there scattered now were joined back together as bodies and they lived. That's essentially what's going to happen with you and I. When the Lord Jesus comes back at the last day, again, whether you've been in the tomb for ages or just a matter of days, He will bring back your body and then you're going to arise. This is all going to happen now very quickly, understand. Uh, Very fast, the Bible says. Uh, We're going to be changed, the Bible lets us know in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. As you read the... uh, chronology, if, if we could even put it in order, of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, it's all going to happen very rapidly. Uh, it's going to be very quick. Now, uh, Revelation 20 lets us know that when Jesus comes back, he's going to be on a, a great white horse. Now, will he literally be on a white horse? I don't know. Uh, I, probably not, but uh, the imagery is there that he's coming back unlike how he came the first time. When he came the first time, how did he come? He came lowly. He came into a poor family. He came into one of the most despised uh, cities of Judah. I mean, they were not considered anything but just a little hamlet. He grew up in Galilee, which was really despised. In Nazareth, of all places in Galilee, that was the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, uh, everything about Jesus' upbringing, birth, his birth, his, uh, was all despised by the religious leaders that dwelt in Jerusalem. So in Revelation 20, what's the imagery that's given to John about the second coming of the Lord? It's totally different than how he came the first time. Here he comes as the conquering victor riding on a white horse. The Bible says his name is Faithful, capital F, and True, capital T. And upon his thigh he shall have written upon uh, him uh, uh, Prince of, uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here he's coming in the second coming, very differently how he came in the first. In the first, he came very lowly. Uh, even when he went into Jerusalem, when he took that, as the Bible called, most headings in the gospel accounts will call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, think about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He didn't come into Jerusalem on some great white stallion. He went into Jerusalem on a borrowed ass's colt. It it didn't even belong to him. Um, He told the disciples where to go, that they would find the wild ass's coat tied at a certain place, and that if anybody said anything, they were to say it, uh, the master has need of them, of him, or of it, the beast. And that's exactly what, so they bring this beast of burden out to the Lord, and Jesus, it shows his humility, But at the same time, here he is coming in, and it it is a declaration also of his Godhead. He's coming into Jerusalem for the final time. This is uh, the week of his suffering, his death, and then into his resurrection. All this is happening very rapidly now, and as he comes into the city of Jerusalem riding on the the colt, the foal of an ass, what happens? Uh, There are folks that come before him and behind him. They cut down the branches of palm leaves, and they lay them out before him, and they cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. So there were some there in Jerusalem that recognized who he was. But that's uh, some did, (laughs) only some. 
Uh, there were Pharisees and there were the elders and the scribes and the priests of the high priest of Perdue that despised him, that hated how he came into the city that day. They were still looking for every opportunity, every way to destroy this man, to remove his existence off the face of the earth. But there were some that day uh, that recognized this is the Son of God. This is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. That's not how it's going to be at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes a second time, every eye shall see him. Even them that pierced him, according to Revelation 1 verse 7. Even the ones that pierced him, they shall behold him. Every eye shall see him. The Bible tells us in the uh, book of Philippians that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. There will be not one uh, that stands in opposition against the Lord Jesus Christ at that day. And not one shall be in ignorance about who he is at that day either. Every eye shall see Him. Every tongue shall confess Him. And every knee shall bow to Him. That will occur at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for you and I, I hope I'm here when it happens. For a couple reasons. One, because I'm ready for it to happen. Two, I just think it would be something to watch. Jude put it this way, that Enoch the seventh, sixth, the seventh from Adam prophesied that the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. You say, well, is that all? No, in the Bible that means a lot of folks. So Enoch, think about that, all the way back. You know, Enoch walked with God and God took him for he was not. Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. He walked this earth for 365 years and God took him out of this world. God took him out of this world because this man was righteous and the world had gone so wicked that he looked down and saw that man and said, I'm not going to allow him to have to put up with this anymore. And so God just literally translated him so that he should not see death and took him right into glory. The first person that ever happened to, the second being Elijah that Brother Matt spoke to us about this morning. So here is Enoch, the seventh from Adam, all the way back in the dawn of creation, much like Job is already, uh, Job is predicting what happens with the body. Job in Job 19, way back in the dawn of creation, is letting us know that even though our skin worms destroy this body, yet in our flesh we shall see God. But uh, Enoch, he prophesies that the Lord will come with ten thousands of his. What is Job ta Enoch talking about there? He's knowing that the spirit and soul at death are going to go to the Lord who gave it. He understood that all the way back in the early part of the book of Genesis. How did he know that? Once again, by divine inspiration, by direct revelation of God, this man Enoch knew that and prophesied that Jesus would come. And when he comes, he's coming with all the spirits and souls of his saints. So Enoch lets us know in the dawn of creation that the soul and the spirit goes to be with the Lord when we die. Uh, Job understood that the body's going to the grave, uh, but God will raise it up and in our flesh we'll see God and spirit, soul, and body will be reunited once again. So we can take two Old Testament individuals that lived way back in history and they understood that truth. They understood the reality of what's going to happen at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, I, I'd love to be here. I'd love to behold the grave's opening. That's the second reason. One, I'm just ready for it to happen. Two, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of like to be here. But I'll tell you this, whether I'm here or whether I'm there, you know, it's going to be a sight if you're standing here upon the earth watching graves open. But do you think it's going to be any less of a sight if you're with the Lord when he descends? If you're one of those spirits and souls that descends and you watch your own body 
come forth from the grave. I mean, that's going to be quite a sight to behold as well. So really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me uh, whether the Lord comes now or he comes later. It doesn't matter to me if I'm here or if I'm already there. It's immaterial. Either way, it's going to be a blessed sight to behold. And at the end of the experience, we're all going to be in the very same situation. And it's going to happen so quickly, we're not really going to have time to think about it. And I'll say, if the Lord's going to tarry, uh, then I'm ready about any time for him to take me home. Uh, I've enjoyed life. I continue to enjoy it. But if he says, child, come home, I'll be satisfied with that. Some want to live to be 100. I don't really want that. Uh, I see what most people go through with that. But anyway, uh, so Enoch says, he coming with ten thousands of his saints. Job says that even though our skin worms destroy this body, yet in our flesh shall we see God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul had to deal with some folks that obviously they could not get their minds around the resurrection. And I suspect being Greeks, they were actually mocking it. In fact, at Corinth, there were those that were in the church that didn't even believe in the resurrection of the bodies. You know, when he stood before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, Paul asked this question. Why is it some incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead. Remember Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. He said, not quite there, but almost thou persuadest. But Paul, why is it an incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead? Why should that be incredible? If God could make the world why is it an incredible thing to think that God could raise the dead? Now, obviously, Paul is doing directly with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But with that is coupled the idea that we will be raised from the dead as well. You know, David said in Psalm 16, he said, because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. He goes on and says, moreover, that in his death, he said, my flesh also shall rest in hope. He says, For thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now I recognize that David was speaking prophetically about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that because of Peter's uh, sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he lets us know that the patriarch David, he said, He's dead, and we know where his sepulcher is to this day. But he quoted Psalm 16, and applied it to the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, His flesh would rest in hope. The other day, Brother David Crawford and I were down at Felda, Florida. Uh, you don't even probably know where that is. Most people wouldn't because there would be no reason to know where it's at. Uh, uh, but anyway, there's a little old Baptist church down there. And as we were down there, he and I walked through the cemetery. I enjoy doing that. Apparently, Brother David does as well. We both came upon a tombstone and both were impressed by the same thing. I've never seen this inscribed on a tombstone before. It's got me reconsidering what I might want on mine. It just simply said, my flesh shall rest in hope. I thought that's a good thing to put on a tombstone. Uh, that uh, uh, there my flesh is resting in hope. That I know there's coming a day that my flesh that's resting in the grave uh, can rest there in hope of the resurrection by the power of the Lord Jesus at the last day. So again, I'm reconsidering what may go on my tombstone uh, when I pass away. But anyway... Uh, that's, that was inscribed on that one. Well, here in first, so David said, my flesh rests. I'm satisfied. I'm content. The Lord's going to take care of me. 
Paul says again, why should it be an incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead? But it, some find it incredible. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, he said, some men will say, or some man will say, probably men, but some man will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Now, we can say that's a fair question, but Paul didn't think it was because he says, thou fool. So he just told the person who asked that question, thou fool. he called him a fool. He says, thou fool. He says, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. So they're rejecting the resurrection. They're, you know, the resurrection is not going to happen. We don't believe it can happen. And, and if it were, Paul, how is it going to, how are the dead raised up? What body are they going to have? You believe in the resurrection at the last day, Paul? Well, prove to us what body are they going to have anyway? Or are we going to have? Paul says, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. So clearly, he's saying, when our bodies die, they'll live again. But first death comes, unless Jesus comes ahead of that. He says, and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. He says, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. He says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Now, what does all that mean that Paul just said? Well, first of all, he says, you and I are like a seed that is sown. When we pass away, uh, our bodies are sown. They're buried. I know a lot of folks don't uh, uh, practice burial anymore, but here Paul assumes uh, that God's people are going to bury their dead. And so he says, here they are sowing the body. He says, but as we sow the body or we sow a seed, you don't expect to... If I took a... a a kernel of corn, and put it in the ground, do I expect just one gigantic kernel of corn to come up out of the ground? No. Obviously, I expect a uh, stalk to appear, and hopefully, if it's a healthy stalk, there's probably going to be three or four ears of corn on that. In other words, it's going to look different. It's still going to be you. It's still going to be me, uh, but it may not look exactly like we look now, and that's fine. Uh, that's what John says. We don't know how we shall appear. We don't know what we're going to look like. We don't know what it's all going to be like, and that's okay. We don't have to know those things. We just have to have this confidence that we're going to be satisfied when we awake with his likeness. So again, he says there's different kinds of bodies. He says all flesh is not the same. He says there's uh, the flesh of men, the flesh of beasts, the fishes and the birds. There are also celestial bodies, bodies terrestrial. Then he talks about the various glory of the sun, moon, and stars. He says so also is the resurrection of the dead. What's he mean by that? We're going to be distinct and it's going to be glorious. He lets us know that there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial, that means an earth-dwelling body, excuse me, a, the, a heavenly body, and the glory of the terrestrial, an earthly body, is another. There's different glory of the different types. Adam, before the fall, I'm certain his body was attractive. 
He was the best specimen of man there ever could be. His genetics were absolutely perfect. Ever since then, it's only been downhill from there. So there was a glory to his terrestrial body. We put glory on the body today. Um, obviously, there's some folks that are considered very attractive. And some folks are actually glorified for their terrestrial bodies. There are men and women that are uh, famous the world over just because of their physical appearance. There are also men and women that are uh, glorified all over the world because of their physical abilities. I mean, every four years you watch the Summer Olympics. Why? To see the physical abilities of the human body. I mean, that's supposed to be the best of the best, those folks who are uh, participating in the World Olympics. Uh, then you take uh, two years after that, you'll have the Winter Olympics. What are you looking at for that? You're looking at the physical prowess of the natural body. Why? To glorify it. That's what it's all about. It's glorifying the terrestrial body. There's a glory to it, no doubt. But there's more glory to the celestial body. The bodies that we will have uh, are going to be hard to be compared to what we have now. And the glory that we shall have in the celestial body, uh, we can't even begin to imagine it now. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Not just uh, to us, he says, but in us. There's going to be a glory revealed in us at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, the sufferings of this present time, he says, I reckon they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that we're going to experience at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then he goes on to say, he says, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star different from another star in glory. Just let, we're going to be distinct. You know, there's that old question, are we going to know one another in heaven? <laughs> are we all just going to walk around uh, all looking exactly like Jesus? That's not what he means when he says we should be fashioned like his glorious body. It means that we're going to be glorified. <laughs> but there's still going to be distinction. And I believe I'll know you and you'll know me. And I'll know Adam and Enoch and Elijah and Moses and Paul and all the saints of God. And so will you. And they'll all know you and they'll all know me. Paul goes on to say, and here's where it really, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, talking about the body, it's sown again, it's buried in corruption it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He says there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, he said, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Big distinction between the two. Uh, the first Adam, he was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quick... He had the power to give life. Adam uh, just simply received life. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, had the authority and the power to give life. He says, how be it that which... Uh, uh, he says, how be it that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which obviously Adam came first, then Jesus. Then he says, the first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is, of, is the Lord from heaven. And I love verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. 
And then he says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. There's been a lot of confusion about that verse through the years. I've heard ministers debate, well, that means that, you know, this spiritual body won't be material. You can't feel it because flesh and blood can't. That's not what he's here saying. He's letting us know that there must be a change to what we are now before we can be heaven dwellers. And that's what he goes on to say when he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But going back for just a moment, he says, Our bodies are sown in corruption, but notice what happens. He says, But it's raised. Here's, here's, the, here's the victory. The defeat seems that, okay, it's sown in corruption. It just proves we're sinners. But how is it raised? It's raised in incorruption. That means that which was decaying and uh, prone to destruction cannot be prone to destruction anymore. It's incorruptible. Uh, the body that comes forth from the grave at the last day won't be like the body that went in. Uh, this body that I have is corrupting every day. Uh, right now, uh, my legs are so sore uh, from crouching down behind 12-year-old boys calling balls and strikes that I'm having a little difficulty walking. Uh, but that, it's just a proof of my decaying body. Uh, but when I come forth from the grave at the last day, I'm not going to have to worry about this corruption anymore because it's going to be a victorious body by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be raised in incorruption, never to be corroded again. And then he goes on to say, not only that, it's sown in dishonor, but it's going to be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. And we know right now uh, that we're weak and growing weaker by the day. And the day will finally come when we breathe out our last and we'll see the full complete weakness of man in his nature uh, because there he'll be not able to take himself uh, from where he passes out to where uh, he, he needs to be disposed of uh, somebody else will have to carry him that's how weak we'll become right now I can still get about there's coming a day that I may still be breathing and somebody else will have to carry me around but if Jesus doesn't come back there's coming a day that about six men will have to tote me from where I am to that grave right out that door. And I'll prove in this body the weakness that currently is. It'll have its finality. But he says, but it'll be raised in power. This body that's weak right now will not always be weak. This body that's prone to the frailties of this world will not be anymore. It will be raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Once again, that does not mean that we'll just be ghosts walking around. It just means that we will have bodies that are completely and totally governed by the Spirit of God. No longer uh, controlled by this nature which God has made for us to dwell in here. But they'll be ready and fit for glory itself where we can abide and be with Him forever and forever. So that's how it is that God will raise the dead. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul will tell us the order of how it's going to happen. He says in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, very common verse of Scripture. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, I trust we all believe that. <laughs> He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Just like Enoch prophesied. 
Enoch said he comes with ten thousands of his saints. So here Paul says, those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So who's coming? God is coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the angel said there in Acts chapter 1, this same Jesus, not another, the same one that they saw go up into heaven shall so come again in like manner. He says, those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And then he goes on to say, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. He said, I'm not making this up. This isn't fantasy or fable or make-believe or just dreaming or hoping away the reality of death. He's saying, I have this by the confidence of God himself. This is God-breathed, God-ordered, and God-preserved. He says, for the Lord uh, has said this. He says, for we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent me and precede them which are asleep. We're not going to go before them. So if you happen to be in the number that's still here when the Lord comes back, you're not going to proceed, meaning you're not going to go ahead of those that are asleep. You're going to be somewhere on this earth, and you're going to be watching as bodies just come up. Now, I don't know where they're all going to come from. We, you know, in our day and time, we think just about graveyards. We don't know where all people have been buried all over the earth for thousands of years. This whole earth is a graveyard. There's bodies in the depths of the sea, bodies in the mountains, bodies in the valleys. There's bodies everywhere. Uh, man has been burying bodies for thousands of years. But know this, wherever you're, you're going to watch as bodies rise up. He says, we're not going to prevent or proceed them which are asleep. For the Lord himself should ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ, they will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I have a letter written to Lydia that's to be opened upon my death. One is also written to the man who's to preach my funeral if he's still living. And in the letter to the man who's to preach my funeral, I have a very specific instruction about what is to be said over that grave. These very words. Why? Because Paul said, wherefore, comfort one another not with some words, he says, with these words. He's very specific about that. And so I want my family encouraged and I want mourners uh, to be uh, revived by the truth of the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is not conquered in my death, but that death will be conquered in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that body that's sown in weakness that other men had to carry, it's going to be raised in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're bearing the image of God to dwell with Him forever and death that has its sting and grave the grave that had its victory will have its sting and victory no longer because Jesus will have conquered it completely and fully and their body, soul and spirit. Every elect child of God will be assembled together gathered together and there will follow the Lord Jesus Christ into glory and here's what he'll say as he says in Hebrews chapter 2, behold I and the children which God has given me. <laughs> if that doesn't encourage the child of God to know that before the world began God determined that you're going to be with him in heaven and then he sent his son in here to pay for your sins, to make sure there would be nothing to stand between you and heaven. 
And then he also gives us divine light to be a partaker of the divine nature to enjoy the Spirit of God while we dwell here upon this earth. And to have the knowledge that we're preserved by the power of God in our position in Christ. And then even though death might come to us, it does not have the power to prevent the destiny that God has set for us before time began. We will be with him in glory at the last day. And nothing at all can prevent that. Because the same God that made this world and has all power will be able and he'll show himself powerful at the last day when he comes and assembles us all together, dead or alive, changes us in a moment to be in his image and encourages us up into glory to dwell with him forever. May God bless you.